Hey there, friends of Holy Shenanigans Podcast. I'm thrilled to share that I'll be recording live from the Wild Goose Festival this July 11 through 14. Wild Goose Festival is a transformational community grounded in faith-inspired social justice. It's a one-of-a-kind gathering that brings together activists, artists, and seekers from all walks of life to explore justice and art, spirituality, and community. The festival will take place at Van Hoy Farms in Union Grove, North Carolina, and I'd love for you to join me there. From engaging workshops to inspired panels and interactive experiences, Wild Goose has something for everyone. So mark your calendars and let's be part of this incredible community that is committed to making a positive impact in the world. For more information, visit www. WildGooseFestival.org. As one of my followers, use a discount code A-TLE24. That's A-TLE24. And you'll get $50 off the price of an adult weekend ticket. We will see you there at the Wild Goose Festival to connect, to build community, and to work for social justice. shenanigans. I'm your muse, Tara Lamont Eastman, a creative, a feminist, and a pastor. In this week's episode, we'll learn about gardening from the Bible and how pruning can be the ultimate action of love. A warm welcome to this week's special guest, David Gray, on this episode called Pruning Equals Love. The Bible lesson for this Sunday is one that makes me wish I knew a lot more about gardening. In the text from John 15 is the vine and the branches story that I think inspired this camp chorus. I am the vine and you are the branches. God's banner over me is love. But this is more about gardening than it is about camp songs. So I find myself going to a space and a topic this week that I don't know a whole lot about. Case in point, camp songs I know, gardening I don't. So this week we go to a space where I'm learning a lot more. I'm learning a lot about this necessity of pruning, and according to the text, how pruning ensures growth. While this Bible text might not seem warm and fuzzy, it's still a lesson that we need to learn. The short review of this text is, pruning must take place if fruit is to grow. Later in the text, we learn that the pruning is a practice that leads to growth. So the old stuff is cut away, and tossed into a fire. This trimming and tossing into the fire is where this lesson often goes to an ungraceful ground. In this story, the plant is attended to, pruned and watered. This plant is well cared for. What is tossed into the fire isn't the whole plant, but the parts that no longer serve the plant. Pruning is not an action of cruelty in this story, but pruning is one of love and care. I imagine a good gardener coming to look at my plants that I try to take care of and saying, hey, this plant needs this, that plant only needs this much water, and so on. Like I said, I have a lot to learn. 
And so this Bible lesson is teaching how to meet the long-term care for spiritual wellness. Pruning or transplanting or action of health is often not comfortable or without risk, but pruning is a necessary action of love. All of this talk about pruning equaling love leads me to a story about a recent pruning experience in real life. In the week before the results of the George Floyd murder trial, I was introduced to the words of a young, black husband and father that made me more fully aware of some needed heart pruning. David spoke honestly of his and his family experience in daily life as a black family and the daily state of awareness they live as people of color in America. Earlier, I mentioned that I wished I knew more about gardening so that one, I can keep my plants alive and well, but secondly, so that I am more easily vulnerable to the loving power of words that prune away things that cause harm, not just to me, but to my siblings of color, culture, and the LGBTQI community. But today is a time for some words that prune in the name of love and building the beloved community that I feel called to take part in. As you've probably guessed by now, this metaphor of pruning is not just about plants, but one for people. People called to love and care for one another. People called to learn from another. And people called to respect one another. This week's guest is David Gray, the young black man who penned these words that came across my newsfeed and pruned my heart. We were able to connect via social media and email, and he agreed to share more of his story here with us at Holy Shenanigans. So today I pass the mic to David as he tells the truths that prune away things that cause harm. This is a sacred calling, especially in the work of excising systemic racism. David's words are ones of love and pruning. For that banner of love, for life in the vine to be full and sweet for BIPOC peoples. White folks, we need to listen, to learn, and to do better. And so I'm humbled to introduce to you a gentleman who is more a poet than he might realize, David Gray. In 1961, Arthur James Baldwin famously commented about being black in America. He said, To be a Negro in this country, and to be relatively conscious, is to be in a state of rage almost all of the time, and in one's work. And part of the rage is this. It isn't only what's happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you, and all of the time, in the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference. Indifference of most white people in this country, and their ignorance. Now, since this is so... It's a great temptation to simplify the issues under the illusion that if you simplify them enough, people will recognize them. I think this illusion is very dangerous because, in fact, it isn't the way it works. A complex thing can't be made simple. You simply have to try to deal with it in all its complexity and hope to get that complexity across. Baldwin might have stated those words 60 years ago, but they still hold true today. We don't have to look hard at every aspect of our lives to find examples of how complex systems of racism and oppression 
disproportionately harm black Americans. The complex systems of racism and oppression are why black Americans suffer the most from environmental injustices and climate change. The complex systems are why black Americans have less access to high quality educational and workforce programs. These complex systems are why black Americans are systematically locked out of wealth building opportunities like home ownership and business ownership. And these complex systems are why state legislatures are making it more difficult for black Americans to exercise their voting rights. One complex system that is receiving the most attention at this specific moment in time is the criminal justice system. Regardless of one's political ideology, everyone can acknowledge that the entire criminal justice system has and continues to disproportionately harm black Americans. The complex systems of racism and oppression are why, in my home state of Louisiana, which has the highest incarceration rate in the nation, 52% of people in jail and 67% of people in prison are black, despite the fact that only 33% of the state's residents are black. The complex systems of racism and systematic oppression are the reasons why black drivers are more likely to be stopped and have their vehicles searched by police, despite being less likely to carry drugs, guns, or other illegal contraband compared to white drivers. And these complex systems are the reasons why black Americans are more than three times as likely as white Americans to be killed during a police encounter, according to researchers at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. During my 30 plus years of living as what Baldwin called a relatively conscious black person in America, I've seen these complex systems affect my life. They affect me individually and intersectionally. And it's these lived experiences that led me to write a Facebook post on a Tuesday night describing one example of how my wife and I move through our world with awareness and intentionality. The post, which I entitled Preparing for Daycare, reads, I need to drive my two-year-old to daycare tomorrow morning. To ensure we arrive alive, we won't take public transit, Oscar Grant. I removed all air fresheners from the vehicle and double-checked my registration status, Dante Wright, and ensured my license plates were visible, Lieutenant Karan Nazario. I will be careful to follow all traffic rules, Philando Castile. Signal every turn, Sandra Bland. Keep the radio volume low, Jordan Davis. And won't stop at a fast food chain for a meal, Rashad Brooks. I'm too afraid to pray, Reverend Clementa C. Pankney. So I just hope the car won't break down, Corey Jones. When my wife picks him up at the end of the day, I'll remind her not to dance, Elijah McCain. Stop to play in a park, Tamir Rice. Patronize the local convenience store for snacks, Trayvon Martin. Or walk around the neighborhood, Mike Brown. Once they are home, we won't stand in our backyard, Stephon Clark. Eat ice cream on the couch, Botham John. Or play any video games, a Tatiana Jefferson.
after my wife and I tuck him into bed around 7.30 p.m., neither of us will leave the house to go to Walmart, John Crawford, or to the gym, Sherrod Oates, or on a jog, Ahmaud Arbery. We won't even walk to see the birds, Christian Cooper. We'll just sit and try not to breathe, George Floyd, and not to sleep, Breonna Taylor. I did not expect that post to go viral overnight. Millions of people reshared my post, commented on my page, and sent me messages of love and support. I saw posts from celebrities and from fellow parents and people from every continent but Antarctica. The profound response left me incredibly humbled by the magnitude of my words and the attention that was on the issues identified through the prose. But the response also left me saddened by the scale of people who felt the burden of racism, oppression, and other forms of trauma. The breadth and depth of the complex systems of racism and oppression cannot be understated. Many of the non-black people who contacted me told me they felt sorry for my family and me. They apologized that complex systems of racism and oppression exist, and they felt terrible that my family and I had to live with this level of fear. I stopped many people there. You see, the post isn't one about fear. The post is about realizing the fact that everyday experiences for most people can be life-altering experiences in a bad way for Black Americans. Despite this realization, most Black Americans operate from the perspective of faith. It's the same faith that our ancestors had on those southern cotton fields. And the same faith that they had while revolting on those same plantations in fights for freedom or while marching hand in hand to attain our civil rights, and while calling for justice and affirming for the world that black lives do, in fact, matter. It's the same faith found in the scriptures black grandmothers instilled into the hearts and minds of black grandkids for generations. Scriptures like, we walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. Isaiah fifty four seventeen. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm twenty three four. For black Americans, we have been walking through America's dark valley since the onset of the transatlantic slave trade in the 1500s. But yet we remain hopeful, lifting every voice and pressing towards the mark for equity and equality in the land of the free. I continue to have faith that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. After all, we've come a long way since Baldwin's remarks 60 years ago. But I also know we have a long way to go. I have faith that progress will be made in the coming years, and I am committed to being part of that change so my two-year-old son 
does not have to experience the same systematic and complex systems of racism and oppression experienced by my wife, myself, and all of our ancestors. It is important to note here that faith alone isn't enough to prune the complex systems of racism and oppression from America's garden. In James chapter 2, we are reminded that faith without works is dead. In fact, verses 15 and 16 say, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? In like manner, if you are listening and recognize that there are people in your community who are under assault by complex racist and oppressive systems, then it's not enough to simply say Black Lives Matter or send your black colleagues a kind note. You must demonstrate your commitment to equity and justice through your works, through taking real, measurable steps to deconstruct complex systems and replace them with new ones that do not perpetuate centuries of injustice. There are no sidelines in this work. Either you are actively pursuing equity and justice, or you are helping to maintain the status quo. There are a number of ways to support the work for equity and justice in America. A few you can consider include directly supporting families impacted by institutional racism, voting for candidates who have a demonstrated track record of deconstructing racist systems, supporting Black-led creative and business endeavors, visiting Black-owned bookshops to educate yourself on issues like police brutality, racial inequality, and historical injustice, and taking time to research local Black-led organizations in your city that are leading efforts to reimagine and reform complex systems that impact people near you. Thank you for taking time to consider this perspective and for your commitment to going forward with more intentionality than you had in the past. As we say in the Black National Anthem, written by James Weldon Johnson in 1899, sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. If you've listened to Holy Shenanigans podcast before, this is the part where I usually have a question or two about the topic for you to think about. Instead of asking a question, I'm going to answer one and also extend my gratitude to David for sharing his perspective that prunes my heart and curates space to share Black stories, to grow into branches of justice that hold us all in love. So this week, I share the Holy Shenanigans mic in the practice of the necessary work of allyship to share Black stories. Here is a little bit more about David and how you can connect with him online. David Gray is a New Orleans native and currently lives with his wife and son in Austin, Texas. David works for the city of Austin, 
where he managed 12 financial assistance programs that collectively distributed more than $50 million to residents and businesses affected by the global COVID-19 pandemic. David is an advocate for justice, a loving father and husband, and you can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at underscore D-A-G-R-A-Y. May his words and his story help us all to remember that God, you are the vine, we are the branches, and that we need help to truly be a banner that bends towards justice, to lift every voice and sing. Thank you for joining me for Holy Shenanigans, to surprise, encourage, redirect, and always turn life upside down, all in the name of love. You're always invited to join me on this unpredictable spiritual adventure that is always sacred, but never stuffy. If you have questions about our podcast, reach out to us at holyshenaniganspodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>